Hello, and welcome to The Reader Podcast. My name is Frances, and I work for The Reader. We're returning now to recordings from The Reader's Gravity Festival, which we held at our headquarters in Liverpool at the start of October this year. The festival was four days of events, hearing from a range of very different authors about their work and also about the things, good and bad, which keep them awake at night. One of the aims of Gravity Festival was to have difficult conversations in public about subjects that don't seem to be being spoken about elsewhere. In the last episode of this podcast, we heard from Frank Cottrell Boyce on the conversation that should be taking place about the effect of the COVID lockdowns on children. This episode will pick up on discussions at Gravity about people in crisis and those who respond to them, emergency services, counsellors and GPs. It's worth pausing here to let you know that we'll return a few times to the issue of suicide in this episode. Two of our guests at Gravity spoke seriously and compassionately about this and they're worth listening to if you feel able to continue. Tony Schumacher grew up in Highton in Liverpool and was a police officer for over a decade before the pressure of the job caused his mental health to fray. He eventually left the force and became a taxi driver and about the same time he began writing and he credits writing with saving his life. After publishing several novels, Tony wrote a TV script drawing on his experiences in the police and this became The Responder, a unique, uncompromising major drama which aired on BBC One in January of this year. In it, Martin Freeman plays Chris, an emergency response officer white-knuckling his way through a series of night shifts and always seeming about to buckle under severe mental strain. We'll go now to the recording from the Gravity event. You'll hear a clip from the responder and then Tony, despite a very sore throat, discussing the clip and his own life and career with Greg, who is our young person's mentor at The Reader and who, by the way, speaks about his own struggles with depression and addiction in episode eight of this podcast. The clip from The Responder, which starts this recording, features Martin Freeman's Chris questioning another character, Marco, as they travel through the streets of Liverpool in Chris's police car. So you're not dealing, Marco? So if I'm going to tell you. How else have you got 100 quid? I got skills, man. Nah, man, you haven't. You're a thick twat. But you have got 100 quid. Done a man a favour. What man? What favour? Are you trying to be a detective again, lad? <laughs> and it's on between us, yeah. Yeah. You know, Snide Nights? No. Well, sat on some gear for him. Gear? Ah, oh, like, jag clothes. We're not an heavy. Just tracksuits and that. But good copies, though. Know what I mean? Smart. Get you one if you want, lad. Nice tracking straps. Smart, you're off to chief, lad. What do you want to do with your life, Marco? I mean, you must have some sort of plan. Is this where you talk to me like you mean dad? Yeah, I've got a fucking dad. It's pointless, isn't it? What? You? Oh, my God. I'm not being rude. You are being rude. Jesus. 
seriously, lad. You're the absolute definition of rude. Everybody says it. Everybody? Yeah, man, you're rude to everyone out here. We all hate you. We? I mean, I... Uh, don't take it personal. I'm just saying, you know, your life... There's no point to it. I got me kid. You got a kid? Yeah, man. Get lost. How old are you? 18. <laughs> you look about 40. Right, and there we go again. You being rude. She lives with her mum. Me kid, she lives with her man. You see much of it? Nah. Why not? She's a slag. You kid? Oh, here, ma, you bellin. Should see you, kid. I ain't got time. What else are you doing, you lazy bastard? Have you got kids? Yeah, I got a daughter. She's here? Yeah, she lives with me. And your beard? Yeah. See me, I didn't, huh? Not yeah. living with your girl. Living with anyone? Don't think you need to worry, mate. Wouldn't mind an house and that, though. With the garden. Show me babies, my and air could stay sometimes. My dad never lived with us as kids, so. It'd be good, be like a family, if you know what I mean. Maybe even go for walks down the beach. Marco. What? I'm not really asked, to be honest. He's unbelievable, isn't he? Brilliant, brilliant. So the first time I watched the responder was just as a fan on the, just on the telly, as a couch potato. And then the second time I watched it was for, for this. And I've said this to Jane yourself, it's like watching something completely different. Mm. When I watched it for the second time. Um, and for that scene, all I see there is love, compassion. And he's probably the most stable thing in Michael's life, isn't he? Because he mm. sees him most more than you know he's the fact he's opening up to him, he sees something in him. And I feel like there was a point there where Chris had to cut off because he was getting too much investing, too much what he didn't have. Mm -hmm. So tell me more about that scene, Tony. Well, that scene is me talking to me in the cab. Initially, it was copper me talking to Scally me in the cab. It was like, because I was a Scally when I was younger. So it was, initially, that was what I was trying to do with the scene. But then as you go into the scene, and it becomes more and more important. So Marco, who was only going to be in it for two seconds, suddenly becomes, you know, more of a character. He becomes someone you don't want to... You want to pay him service, you know, and you want to do something with him. And, and Josh, you played him. Oh, my God, you know. To face everything about him, you think, how could you not carry on writing for him? But it's... Chris's vulnerability is that... Martin's character, Chris, isn't vulnerability is, is that he, we, we talked about this the other day, he's yeah. only got, he's got like a, I would say it like a, a fuel gauge emotion. <clears throat> and you know, you got like your red bit, you've got your orange bit, like, I mean, I'm going back to an old Vauxhall Viva here about 30 years ago, <laughs> but you've got like your orange bit over here and you've got your bit in the middle and then you've got your red bit over here and you know, everything's kind of cool. And Martin's gauge, it's nearly all red now. Chris's gauge. And he's got no space whatsoever. And so many people who work in emergency services, not just coppers, 
doctors, nurses, paramedics, fire bobbies. The gauge is right the way over, full of red. And if it goes completely red, they'll start crying. So that's the thing is that that's where he, when he says, when Martin says to him, I'm not really asked to be honest with you. He's desperately asked, yeah, but, but he just can't afford to be asked at that moment. He's got to pull it back. What, what you said there about Marco was you, because when I first seen it, I thought, how has he captured someone that well? Because my uncle phoned me, my uncle lives in LA, and he rang me and said, do you know anyone called Marco? And I used to tell you 10 by ours called Marco. It's a yeah. very, it's a very brutalish name, Marco. Yeah. I don't know who it's named after, because you can't be Marco Pierre White. No, it's but, definitely, <laughs> it's definitely I know, no, I know no. a lot of Marcos who, yeah. who are basically carbon copies of that character. Yeah. Yeah. What age was was that you? About 18. Was it? 16 to 18. I, I was one on the roofing and demolition. And I was a scallion. But Marco is based on a lad, he's not here, so it's what I can say. He's based on a lad who lives by me called Carlo. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> there he is, yeah. And he knows he's in it. He knows he's in it. He's the lad who was telling you about yeah. around by yeah. the, the, the off license where I walk me dog. And um, I don't just walk outside the off license, I walk past it. <laughs> and um it's on a massive off like us. And um, he said so sad that he sells stuff out of a carrier bag. But the beauty, the, the thing that I really, 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 really wanted to do was like with Marco, was pay like enough sufficient respect to Carlo and the Carlos in yeah, the world. All over the city. Exactly. Yeah, and the world, yeah. It was a kid's yeah. day. I was in the park this afternoon with my wife and her baby. And um, there was a kid kicking a ball. By the cafe. <clears throat> and um, he kicked the ball really hard and it's a window. You know? And I was like, I felt, initially I felt like I wanted to punch his head in. But then you think to yourself, do you know what? He just wanted people to look at him. Yeah, attention. In that second, yeah. that's all he wanted. Yeah. He just wanted to be noticed. And that's what I set out to do with Marco, was to pay them sufficient respect and go, do you know what? When we're looking at you. And I, I was lucky that I managed to get 11 million people on BBC One to look at him and see him as a person and not just as this scally selling trackies. And, and we own all them characters, don't we? Yeah, exactly. On our oh, local yeah, estate, yeah. Of course, yeah. Yeah, of yeah, course. Okay, can we have another scene, please? Thanks very much. Sorry to keep you. No, it's okay. How have you been? Not bad. Mm-hmm. Like bad at home or bad at work? Yeah, both. How's Helen? Helen. Your wife? You are? No, that's <laughs> James. You're four, aren't you? I'm so sorry. I've I looked at the clock, so I'm running late, and I've I've picked up four thirty. Right. Um, I'm so sorry, but I'm absolutely um, swamped. There's so many of you. There used to be two of us. Dying in front of you, don't even know my name. <laughs> oh, Chris. The car park. Mm -hmm. 
The boy you fell? Yeah, I'm not here because he fell. I'm, I'm here because I cried when he fell. I know. Yeah. I remember. Can, can we um, try again with the time that we've got left? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Just keep it simple, please. Okay. okay. Right. I don't know what's right and wrong anymore. Okay. I thought I was doing something good this week, and now it's got me fucked. So what I want to know is, right, how do you even know? Before you do something, right, how do you even know whether it's right or not? And I mean right for you. And right for them, right for someone you've never even met. And fuck, I know, I know I'm spinning here, but... Right and wrong mm -hmm. is quite a binary concept when you break it down. Pretty much the first thing a child learns. Mm. If you can see through the fog and clear your mind in the ways that we've discussed, then you'll know what is right and what is wrong. And you will be able to apply that decision to the issue at hand. Does that help? Are you able to, you know, share what's not convinced? Can I stop you? Yeah. Um, Do you want... I'm sorry, no, it doesn't help. It doesn't help. I'm gonna go. That fucking hate me. You don't even know who I am. So, excuse me. Well, I can only apologise. Thank you. Fucking hate this job. And, you know, only watching that scene back, what one of the biggest details I found was he said he was in... Because we're here to talk about mental health and men mm -hmm. suffering the most. You know, it's... The reason he gave that he was there, not because his life's falling apart, because I cried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, 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 well, that was me. Just that. <coughs> that was me, shallow white car park in St. Helens. It's the beauty of writing this stuff. It's like, it's, it's free therapy, you know? Um, and there was a lad, I can't remember his name, I can never remember his name, but he had a funny name. It was something like Jumbo or something like that. I can't remember his name. And um, he jumped up the car park. Um, like, it was about, I think, I think shallow white car park's about five or six, but he only got up to about the second floor. And he jumped. And uh, because we were all chased him up the, the stairs, and he broke his leg, we all come down, and there was a sense of like relief amongst everyone who was there. Yeah. His kids, mates, the boys who were dealing with the, the ambulance who'd seen up. There was a sense of relief. But I, it was towards the end of my career, I couldn't handle the How sense of relief. How old was he? He was about fourteen, and I couldn't remember. I couldn't handle the sense of relief, and I started crying. And everyone was like, "He hasn't even died." But it wasn't that he was 
yeah. dead or alive. It was more, it was just the sense of emotion because we all thought he was going to die and he didn't. And it was a sudden, you get this weird euphoria and it was because I'd lost the ability to handle extreme emotions. And unfortunately, being a 999 response, Bobby, I don't know if there's any here, but it's just extreme emotions. All of everything, that. everything is. The only thing there isn't is your pot noodle at two in the morning. <laughs> it's like, it's just extreme emotions. It's tough, that. It's yeah, tough. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. scene really got me, that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of them scenes. We did a show in, in Italy. We were entered in a competition in Italy that we didn't win. But um, <laughs> we went to this theatre in Rome to show it. An opera house, actually, madly in Rome. And at the end of the, the thing, we did the Q&A. And then um, we were leaving the stage. And these three, it was two fellas and a woman, caught me at the corner, caught me a man at the corner of the stage. And they were Italian bobbies. We didn't speak English, but they'd been, we had like an interpreter with us. And the bobbies all said, we're here because it just upset us that much. It was on by, you know, in Italy. They said, it's just, it, it got to us that much. And it was fascinating to see that everyone who works in the emergency service, it doesn't matter where you're at. She has the same feeling. He's struggling in the same way because of the cuts in Italy, the cuts over here. And the, there was no mental health support yeah. for those people. It was even less, really, than what we were getting. And that ties into what I'm going to say next. When you talk about cost of living and cuts, she was clearly in a position where she actually said she changed the job, but she's got to do it, hasn't she? Yeah, yeah. Don't know what yeah. her situation was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's obviously happening across the country in different disciplines. <coughs> and who's counselling there? Exactly. Who counsels the counsellors, yeah. I've got a friend who's a, a, a counsellor uh, who works in Wales. And she says she doesn't want to go in the waiting room because to just to see them all sitting there, no, no, she can't help them all. She can see them in ones and twos, but the, the thoughts of walking through the waiting room because she's running late and there's like six people sitting in the waiting room waiting and she knows all of that misery and she can't, she can only just smooth it over for half an hour. It's terrifying. It really is genuinely terrifying. We talk about cuts and we all bang on about cuts, you know, in the NHS and the, uh, all of that. But stuff like that, it doesn't make financial sense. To not look after these people because it costs more to train them. Yeah. It costs more than pensions when they have to leave early because they've cracked up. It doesn't make it, and you lose, you lose what you can never buy, which is experience. It doesn't make any sense. Put money into it and keep them on the road. Keep them out there working. If you had a car, you get it serviced. Yeah. But the emergency services, yeah. we don't. We literally just say, keep going, keep going, keep going. Oh, he's dead. Here's another one. Bang. Yeah, Straight off the box. Boom. Two bobbies who I worked with in the last couple of years have committed suicide. Sorry to hear that. It's, it's, it is an it's right. absolute. And I came within an inch of it. I come within minutes of it. But two bobbies who I worked with, two incredible men who worked their socks off for the people of this city, committed suicide because, uh, unfortunately, cut meant. There was a support there for him. See, I've got a, I've got a theory about this. It's probably completely wrong, but um, when I was a kid, when I was about, God, I don't know if I should say this. I was about 13 and a half, 14. My brother used to take me to pub on a Thursday night. My brother used to get paid on a Thursday. we get your brown envelope, you know, when you go to the pub. And it was the Swan in Heighton. Hmm. And we'd go into the Swan in Heighton. 
and there'd be this big massive table in the corner with about 30 fellas all sitting around and they all knew each other. And you wouldn't, I doubt, I was 13, but I doubt there was many people who were going, I think I'm cracking up here. Yeah. But I do believe there was a community of men who, who spoke honestly. And pubs are gone now. Yeah, and I don't know if I don't know if it, if it's if there's a correlation. I'm sure someone cleverer than me could figure it out. But I do wonder with this this it is an epidemic of suicides in men. Yeah, it's just it's crazy the numbers, and I do wonder if that is part of it is that you don't have the community because in the old days my dad worked on Ford on a production line, and he would talk to the fellas around him. He would go to pub at the weekend with his brothers. Like it, there was communication nowadays. If you're sitting driving a Delta taxi all night. Yeah. The only conversations you're in with are about Brexit or Jamie Carragher. There's no, there's nothing else, you know. And I, I too wonder if what time, what time you start and what time you're on till. Exactly. Now the reader, we we came and this isn't a plug for the reader. Use it all here. You all know the brilliant way to do. But we we come to a, a, a read, didn't we? Yes, sharing with the Vitality uh, Group, which Mary's run. Well, Mary's yeah. run. It was one of the most amazing nights of my life, and I don't say that yeah, lightly. It was I genuinely was. I sat there in a room. With men, two of the gents have come tonight. By oh, the way, there you go. Yeah. With men who I just, I, I, their honesty and their intelligence—it just blew me away. It just blew me away. I was sitting there listening to these fellas and thinking, the love that they've all got for each other. Oh my God, it was incredible. And I think that that society is lacking that for men and women. By the way, I'm not saying that women have got it easy because they haven't. My wife at home, and they've got to put up with us as well at the same time, haven't they? But like I do think fellas are lacking that ability to have. And the, and the great thing about the reader is, is that if you want to, you can hold that book in front of your face. Yeah, you don't have to speak. You don't have to speak, yeah. It's up to you what you want to get, get out of it. Yeah. But Jane, tell me a story about, about obviously you've experienced share reading, and for me, that is it's life changing. Because I, this is no disrespect to. The NHS, because they're fantastic, but all the, the, the things I was offered didn't work for me. And at the time, I was thinking, what a waste of time, that. It's crap. No good. They don't know what they're on about. Now I realise that I wasn't ready for it. Mm. So I had this wall put up in front of me, which stopped anything getting in. But, so I never ever spoke about taking drugs. Didn't really discuss it, what, what I felt, what it done to me, mum, nothing like that. And I held so much guilt. And the shared reading just done something. Oh, yeah. Can't explain what it was, still no. can't. I'm always trying to for marketing and comments, but I just, can't, <laughs> I just can't put my finger on it. Yeah. But the best way I could describe it is, it was as if someone reached inside me. What Jimmy done with your script? Yeah. Someone reached inside, got me emotions, said, put that there, put that there, put that there, give me a pat on the back and sent me on my way. Yeah. Just helps, it works. It's literally, it's putting it in your hands, putting your emotions, putting your heart in your hands. It's somebody doing it, and it's difficult to do yourself. But someone puts them in your hands and you look after them and you start to cherish them. Yeah. We spoke uh, briefly about this yesterday, didn't we? But the frightening thing for me, I don't want to sit here and skate all and say you, you should be like that next week because you, you, you won't. But we were talking how easy it is, wasn't we? Mm -hmm. We were talking about suicide. Yeah. How, you know, it is a thought out process sometimes, but also it's sometimes just a bad decision that you mm -hmm. can't take back. And also, that lifestyle, crime, drugs, it's not so far away from what we think. Oh. And it's very accessible. Listen, uh, you know, I went from being a cop to being homeless in a week. You know, but especially now with the cost of living crisis, so many people are living on a knife edge constantly. And, you know, and suicide, 
it's got a, it's a byproduct. There's no other way to put it. It's a byproduct of those struggles. And like when people say it's a thought out thing, I think a lot of people plan suicides. I've been to many suicides. People who've, you know, um, done written letters, have bought petrol, whatever, you know what I mean? They've all done it. But suicide to me boils down to, when I said this to you yesterday, it boils down to a whip crack. Yeah. It's the moment that you let go of the ledge. It's not the moment of getting over a fence. It's not the moment of standing on the ledge and looking down before you let go. Suicide's all about that whip crack when you actually let go. But you can't. And once you've let go, you know what I mean? But I've never met such what I don't think I've ever met anyone who's regretted surviving suicide. And I've been to a lot of jobs where people have, have sadly took their own lives and I've seen the regret a bit large when you go onto that scene. Do you know what? Still, still makes me feel sick to this day. Um, what's worrying and I think is, is a massive issue around when we talk about suicide, it's becoming, a, it's becoming an option, yeah. a lot easier. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. When, when I was at the time in life, I, I'm not a parent, and for all those in the room who've got kids will, won't believe what I'm about to say, but my thought process was, I've pushed my mum to a breakdown. She's on, she's being taken away, she's getting sectioned, she's on tablets, she's mm -hmm. broken her. So I'm putting it, I'm seeing her go through pain every single day, but if I kill myself, she'll get over that. Yeah, but and that, that, that <coughs> was, that was, it was A, it was that or that. And for me to sit here thinking that, 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 that's harrowing. I mean, you, you know, you, people who do it are ill. It's a, it's a physical illness. It's not something that anyone can be blamed for. It's not someone who can, you know, neighbour for the grace of God and all that kind of stuff. People who do it, I've got, I assume, I don't, I'm not an expert, you know, I'm just some cabbage from Whiten, but <laughs> it's, I would suggest the people who do it, you know, you're not, I mean, by definition, you're not in a position where you're making great decisions, are you? No. But I think that the one thing that you've got to do is you can't judge people, you know. Definitely not. You know, you don't know what it's like. And if I'm to look back then, I don't know going on. By choice, because I had a fantastic upbringing. Yeah. I wasn't one of these who, you know, like, I had an awful upbringing and had any childhood trauma. I was lucky enough to live a very good, have a great upbringing. My was all choice. And... But I put, got myself to a position where the choices I was making, I just didn't, I, I, no, I wasn't living my life. I was living just to kind of take drugs and take drugs and that's it. And now, as you say, it's, where we are now is just a, a, a path of positive choices, isn't it? Yeah, why everyone here has survived to this way? We should all give each other a round of applause for surviving. You know what I mean? Surviving this talk, <laughs> probably. We'll leave Tony and Greg for a moment, but we're going to stay with those split-second whip-crack decisions that Tony was speaking about there, and hear from another guest at Gravity Festival who has been particularly concerned with those moments in the lives of people in crisis. This was Chris Dowrick, Professor of Primary Medical Care at Liverpool University 
and a practising GP. Chris is the author of the well-known book Beyond Depression and more recently of the book Reading to Stay Alive, Tolstoy, Hopkins and Their Dilemma of Existence. This book draws on case histories of Chris's patients alongside the case histories of characters from Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy and encounters with poems by Gerard Manley Hopkins which, though written nearly 140 years ago, speak powerfully from inside those moments of crisis and desperation. Chris talked via video link at the festival to Philip Davis, Emeritus Professor of English Literature at Liverpool University. Here is Chris beginning by reading one of the case histories from his book. She used to be the singer in a band and she felt beautiful then. But for many years, she suffered from chronically low self-esteem, continually reinforced by long-term abuse from her ex-partner. She'd recently been diagnosed with breast cancer secondaries in her spine and her consequent anxiety and depression, self-treated but also exacerbated by alcohol, led her to take several overdoses. And her attempts to start a new life for herself with the support of many good friends were frustrated by forced isolation during the first major lockdown of, of our COVID-19 pandemic. The, the, the fear and loneliness became too much for her. She took another overdose, survived it, but kept on drinking. She reached out to her son in the hope of a few seconds conversation with her beloved granddaughter, Tammy, but her call was blocked. And two days later, she was dead. Liver damage from a combination of secondary cancer and alcohol caused the blood vessels in her esophagus to rupture, leading to catastrophic internal bleeding. The police were called and found her in bed, lying in a congealed pool of blood. And on her table was an opened copy of Michael Moorcock's book, The Sundered Worlds. And beside her on the bed were two photographs, one of her young self singing with the band and the other of her and Tammy all dressed up at a family celebration, smiling joyously together. So these potent images were the last that she ever saw, her life as it had been, her life as she wished it to be, but a life that was to be no more. Now, like Anna, like Anna Karenina, Charlie was at very high risk of suicide. Her belongingness to life's loves, especially her granddaughter Tammy, now seemed to her to be entirely thwarted. She felt lonely and disconnected in the absence of any reciprocally caring relationships. She felt defeated, humiliated and trapped with no possibility of escape or rescue. Her chronically low self-confidence meant she too easily assumed herself to be a burden to the many people who reached to offer her care and support and left her with little belief in the possibility of solving her problems. And her previous overdoses had demonstrated her capability of suicide, her ability to tolerate the related fear and pain. She had the strain of being unable to find the coping skills to address the crises engulfing her and her sense of safety was overwhelmed by the multiple threats 
to her existence. There was nowhere other than perhaps the vodka bottle where she even momentarily felt safe. Although technically, legalistically, this wasn't suicide, but accidental death. For Charlie and for me, such differences are really semantic and irrelevant. She could no longer find any reasons to stay alive. Now, we might assume, as, as with Anna, that her tragic end was inevitable, that the constellation of adverse circumstances meant Charlie's death was one way or another imminent. And it's true that the advanced nature of her cancer meant her life would be foreshortened. Yet the timing and the manner of her passing could so easily have been different. If the pandemic had not forced her into complete isolation, away from the therapeutic comfort of her friends. If her son had not refused her contact, even a few minutes on Zoom with her beloved granddaughter, she might have found the grace to stay alive and to keep her flame of hope alight. She herself didn't read Anna Karenina. That's a connection no. it, that's in your mind. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes. Let me... Um, read you just a little bit that um, Chris was particularly uh, referring to. Um, if you haven't read the book, this will uh, spoil it for you. Um, I don't mind that. Um, uh, she commits suicide in front of a, a train. She did not take her eyes off the wheels of the approaching second truck. And at the very moment when the midway point between the two wheels drew level, she threw away her red bag and drawing her head down between her shoulders threw herself forward on her hands under the truck. And then comes this bit. And at the same moment, so like Tolstoy to say that, and at the same moment as she threw herself under the truck, she was horror struck by what she was doing. Where am I? What am I doing? Why? She wished to rise, to throw herself back, but something huge and relentless struck her on the head. Though what you call contingencies, that just at yes. that moment, at the yes. same time, she finds herself almost like a different person saying, where am I? What am I doing? Why am yes. I doing this yeah that's the moment yes you. yes um, and, and 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 further back in that particular text there is a series of contingencies she, she well through her last day she has an argument with uh, with Vronsky and he storms off to see his mother-in-law he doesn't stay and try and sort things out she, she sends him a message and he doesn't get it in time and then he sends her a uh, 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 what she sees is a cursory message back and then, and then she, she's on a train and then she feels people are looking at her and then she gets on the platform and she feels people are criticizing her so she has to go to the end of the platform so it's, it, it's only when she gets to the end of the platform she thinks ah I know what I'll do and then as you point out even then even when she's under the train she still thinks, oh my god why, why am I doing this so yes and, and, and I, I, I think for those of us who are for, for, for those who are considering suicide as an option, but I'm, I'm talking really here more for those of us who are caring about caring for people who are considering suicide, whether as 
as family doctors, whether as friends, whether as relatives or colleagues. I, 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 I think this, this, this point about it's, it's not over until it's over. There are always, always until that very final moment, that there are always things that could be different uh, that the person can do, that you can do, that we can do just to, to, to help to avert that. Um, and do you find that that gives you sort of hope? Because the book that you've written seems to me as a reader, very much poised between, on the one hand, great fear yeah. um, in the people, but also you as, as, as a person meant to be helping them. Um, yeah. and, and something um, that's not to be easily called or won as hope. That's what the book oscillates between, is that? Yes, do you agree? That, I do, I do. I think what literature helps us to do uh, is, is something different from what um, you know, medical training, medical training t tells you, you know, what signs to look out for, what are the risk factors, what, what questions to ask to assess the level of severity. Um, psychology and sociology explain reasons why people might, you know, what sorts of people might, might be more likely to to, to, to take their own lives. Uh, philosophy, which I'm also interested in, is, 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 it gives you a lot of good, good ideas, good thoughtful, thought-provoking ideas about why, why people might wish to end their lives. And also, even sometimes, I think philosophy has to force for good as opposed to what people can do about it. We can talk about that later if you want. But I think what, what, what literature does, what, what Anna Karenina does, what Hopkins does, what lots and lots of other things do, they actually get you I, I can do no better than, than quote our, our good friend and colleague Josie Billington here. They enable us to engage with the inadmissible um, and, and to hold, hold thoughts and to experience emotions which we would otherwise fear it would almost kill us to contain. Tolstoy considered suicide. Uh, Hopkins was in great mental distress. Yes. You could have chosen, and in fact, there are a wide variety of authors in yep. this book, but they are the two. You have yep. about four case histories of people um, like Charlie, yep. of which Charlie is is the most extreme, I suppose. And yes. But there yep. are also these two case histories of Leo and Gerard. Can I you do. say a yes. little more about why you wanted them on your side? I can. Yeah, well, yes, indeed, on my side. I like the way you put that. Um, I mean, Leo, well, Leo, we've been talking about Leo mostly so far. Um, uh, I'm a, 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 an absolutely fascinating human being. Um, I, I love him, but at times he's incredibly irritating because he's, he, he, he is so, so self-confident. I mean, as, as you probably know, he, he decided to say this, like, to completely rewrite Christianity because it, it wasn't, quite, wasn't quite correct. So, you know, you have to have some, uh, some, some sense of, of, of yourself as a competent being to do that. Uh, but it, but I, 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 I love the way in which he can really get in touch with many different sorts of people. I mean, if, if we just stick with Anna Karenina, I mean, I mean, the four main characters, uh, Kitty goes into a, a, a very severe despair, an existential crisis, you might think trivial, but it wasn't for her. When she felt that, that Vronsky wasn't taking her seriously and, and she was in, 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 in serious despair. Then you've got Vronsky who uh, tries to shoot himself uh, when he is humiliated by, 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 by Karenin. And then after Anna's death, it goes off to, 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 
to fight in the Balkans in the hope of in the hope of being killed by soldiering. And then you've got Anna we've talked about, and then as you say, we've got Levin, who's really is absolutely Tolstoy's alter ego, who who goes through a period of the most profound existential despair, despite his life circumstances being as good as anybody could wish for. You know, he's wealthy, he's got a big family, he's you know he's he hasn't got he hasn't got any of the the factors against him that that Anna had. But but it, it, he he's, he he gets to the stage where he he he, he can't he can't have a gun or a rope anywhere near him. But for, for fear he might use them on himself. But then he, he finds he finds ways of working through that. Um, um, so so you've 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 got four four different case studies within that book. Yeah. Um, what um, if uh, what if Levin came to you as a GP, mm. and he said what you just said that he has a good life. Yeah, he's happily married, and yet this terrible questioning and despair yeah. and existential crisis. Um, those two don't match. It's very like Tolstoy that things don't match. Yeah. It's very like yeah. us that things don't match. What yeah. do you think? Do you think he's nuts to be asking all these questions? Well, actually, his life is good. No. Absolutely not. I mean, I mean, you're right. I mean, one could easily do that. It would, it would be easy to dismiss and, on one hand, sort of not take it seriously because even if, if you look at the sociological whatever literature, he he has no risk factors. Well, he doesn't have none actually. He does have some because he's he's got an early 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 family death of his, uh, of his brother, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, of his brother, and 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 he had quite a difficult childhood. So you wouldn't say none, but in terms of recent ones, he's he's in a very good place. So I think. Uh, if, if you were doing a sort of mental health assessment, you, you, you would think he was probably low risk, but actually you'd be quite wrong because he's very, very, very high risk. Um, uh, so, but in terms of what I would do, I, that's a wonderful thought. I would just love, I would love to have those conversations with him. Absolutely love to. Um, I, what I would mostly do would not do anything. I would sit and listen and just engage and encourage him to tell me just you know, whatever tell, tell me more tell me what's what's going on tell me you know, maybe why but if you more tell me what rather than tell me why because i think as we know from i mean he's tying himself up in knots trying to work out why but it's just the what the the experience what what it's like and um um so, so i was i was just i was just thinking about another good friend good friend of both of us uh, i i uh, Iona Heath, who's uh, uh, like me, so she's semi-retired, but she, she she's got a wonderful phrase about the, the GP's role is, is is to be a witness to suffering, um, and so I, I think that's what I would yes. in, in 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 that in in that imaginary consultation, which I shall think about a lot. When I've mentioned it. That's, that's interesting. That would it? be my main role. Yeah. I mean, and that uh, Iona Heath uh, witness to suffering is what the doctor should be, is also, I think, derives from John Berger's A Fortunate Man, isn't it? I mean, that's the tradition yes. that you're in, and it is literary mm. as well as medical. Yes, Let me is. take you on a moment to the, the Hopkins, because yes. I wondered if you talk a little bit about, um, there's a woman, uh, another case history, who's called Frances. Yeah. And you say in her book, that in your book, that after... Uh, she's read Hopkins. Um, you write this, if I may quote 
to you. It's just a sentence. Paradoxically, witnessing his aloneness enables her to feel less alone. Yes. That's, I, I thought that was striking um, and strange. Um, yeah. And something to do with what you were saying of what extra does literature do that yes. uh, yeah. other studies, other disciplines, all that you were trained in doesn't quite do. Could you tell us yes. a bit more about Frances and what she got from Hopkins? I can, uh, but, uh, and I, I, I'll start with myself if I may, and then, and then come on to Francis, because actually our situation is very similar. Because I, I, I first met Hopkins uh, when I was 18, uh, and I was living in, in a YMCA hostel in West Bromwich. Uh, I was doing some, some, some voluntary work between uh, school and university, and I was, I'd, 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 I'd split up with my long-term girlfriend, and I was, I was actually very lonely and very, very unhappy. And I remember um, standing on, on a motorway bridge, wondering what it would be like to, to, to jump off. Um, and so somebody, somebody gave, gave me a copy of, of Hopkins poetry. And, and I mean, it was, it's the, it was the, the same poem that um, Francis was struck by that the, uh, the one that starts off no, no worst uh, there is none pitched pitched past pitch of grief more pangs will schooled as four pangs wilder ring it goes on halfway through the mind mind has mountains cliffs of fall frightful sheer no man fathomed like francis i thought wow mm. this guy gets it yes I, yes he 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 there is where i am now and and and, and that in you know whatever 150 year difference massive you know there, 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 there was a visceral emotional just a profound connection um and you might have thought that reading somebody in extremists like that would exacerbate one's condition or that you couldn't even begin to read it but you and Francis got something from yes. it, though there is yes. no immediate sense of cheer in that. No, no. I mean, in that particular science, if you dig very deeply and do a bit of interpretation, you might find a little bit, but really, it's you're clutching at stores. There isn't much in that one. Yeah. I mean, the other bit, yeah. if, if, if I may, from, from, from Carrie and Comfort. Yes. Um, just the first four lines of this sonnet, because for, for, for Francis, this was the business, this one. So it's not, I'll not carry and comfort, despair, not feast on thee, not on twist, slack they may be, these last strands of man in me, or most weary cry, I can no more. I can, can something hope, wish day come. And then these, these last few words, not choose not to be. There's a whole series of powerful and deliberate uses of the word not, which is which is him wrestling with himself, with God, with the devil, whoever, but, but just wrestling and deciding, excuse my friends, bugger it, I, I, I'm going to stay alive, I'm going to get through this, and I am going to keep going. In the book, you talk about the role of the GP, as you conceive it, as Iona Heath conceives it, as John Berger and yeah. John Sassel conceive it, as as 
holding for yeah. the your patient. Yeah. Could you describe a little bit about that? Um, because it seems related to the way that you also say in the book, look, I don't quote them literature, it's shaken down into something for me. Yeah. So I'm interested yeah. in that role of holding and also what literature and writing this book have done. Obviously, for, for some people, literature, if people are in deep distress, there may be some things that they read. And when I've been talking to people, people have, I think, I read somebody a few weeks ago said that she was very low and she, she went and reread uh, Jane Austen, and that was incredibly helpful. And, and, and somebody else was telling me about Matt, Matt Haig's book, The Midlight Library, which I mentioned in this. So, so, so I, I think that if you like the sort of a primary function of, of, of reading as, as, as a relief from deep distress, but a secondary function is through enabling me to be. Uh, to, to be more able to uh, to bear witness and and to hold. So, so I, I, I don't have to quote. I mean, I mean, this is an extreme case here, and there's another extreme case where I'm quoting, uh, I'm discussing Sartre with my patient Darren. But I I, I, I don't have to do that. But I, I, it's it, it's giving me, it's expanding my inner. Uh, emotional and, uh, and psychic resources in order in order to be able to sit with to hold to bear witness yes and i think and i remember reading in something else of yours as a moment when you say i think to to a patient um perhaps i may because the patient is in despair yes. um hold your hope for you yes 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 that's right isn't it that's exactly right. Yes, yes. Mm. I, I, I've said that not very often. I've said that a few times to people, and they. It seems to me that they, they hear it, they understand it, and and that that is something that that, that matters to them. Yeah, because they can't hold it themselves. No, no, they but can't. But you no, hold no. it as a proxy, and you're yeah. able to hold it because of the resolve of your experience, which includes your reading. Yeah. What is writing this book? Because although it's about six case histories, yeah. four real, two writers, um, it's also about you, isn't it? Really? It is. It uh, is. Both as a doctor and a reader yeah. and a sufferer. Um, so what has the writing of this book done for you, Chris? I started writing as, a, as, a, as, a, as an academic you know, I started from an academic point of view, things cerebral or whatever. But the more I got into it, and as I've said to you already, uh, my uh, relationship with Charlie in particular, um, it it it's it sort of I I I, I realised or reminded myself that I wasn't simply an observer or, or a supporter, but I, I was I was also writing for me, uh, for myself as as a human being, for for my own my own past and, and current existential concerns. Um, and as, as I've said, as, as again, I, I was writing out of grief as a way of expressing my grief uh, for Charlie. Um, the anxieties and deceptions and grief and evil that that Anna felt or, or Hopkins cliffs of fall are, are, are at times as real to me as, 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 as they are to, to their writers. Or to Charlie, or to Francis, or to, or, or to Darren, or to some of the other people that I mentioned. Um, but also, uh, so are the shoots of hope that in which, for example, when when, when Tolstoy's Levin stops stops thinking and just starts getting on with life and doing stuff. Um, 
or, or when Hopkins Hopkins calls off, this is in one of the later poems in this, he calls off thoughts a while to leave comfort root room. And again with Hopkins, those occasional transient but wonderful moments of joy um, to be found watching his, his dappled dawn drawn falcon in, in, in majestic flight. So it's, it's, it's a whole set of things, but it's, it's, it is, as we all know, it's, it's as much if not more about me than it is about, about anybody else. Literature, and in particular the literature written from the deep or the steep, as Hopkins puts it, can give words to inner tumult that might otherwise seem inexpressible. And it can allow the responders and the carers to be more able to bear witness, more able to bear anything. I kept thinking there that Tony Schumacher's character Chris in The Responder could be one of Chris Dowerick's case studies. And I was wishing there had been a counsellor for Chris who was not themselves in despair, but had the emotional resources to hold hope. We'll return now to the event with Tony and Greg, whose own stories hold a not inconsiderable hope. And the final question I've got for you, Tony. If you were to enter, go back in time yeah. and for the police now, what would you do differently? No. Not a thing. Oh, do you know what? Going back to being taken to school. Except for shapes. I, I wouldn't change a thing. The misery, the, the, and, you know, you try not to, to upset as many people along the way, I suppose, is the best thing. But I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't change a thing. Because <clears throat> we're all here. This is who we are. Everyone here, you know. There's nothing wrong with change. I'm being on a journey, you know. But I literally, I wouldn't change a thing. Honestly. Because it, it's, it's made me who I am. I couldn't write before all this. All that happened to me, being homeless yeah. and having breakdowns yeah. and drinking, all of that kind of stuff. I couldn't write before I committed, you know, whatever. And, and whatever it was has led me to doing this. It's the best job in the world. Lucky as anything, you know. Well, it's been a journey. And what in truly the fashion I'd like to finish with a It's poem. been a journey, just it's two hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So that you, you've obviously been on a journey yourself. I have, we have tonight. So I'm going to read a poem called The Journey. So this is by Edward Field. When he got up that morning, everything was different. He enjoyed the bright spring day, but he didn't realise it exactly. Just enjoyed it. And walking down the street to the railroad station, past magnolia trees with dying flowers like old socks, it was a long time since he breathed, since he breathed so simply. Tears filled his eyes and he felt good, but he held them back because men didn't walk around crying in that town. And waiting on the platform at the station, the fear came over him of something terrible about to happen. The train was late and he recited the alphabet to keep hold. And in its time, it came screeching in. And as it went on, making its usual stops, people coming and going, telephone poles passing. 
he hid his head behind a newspaper. No longer able to hold back the sobs and willed his eyes to follow the rational weaving of the sea fabric. He didn't do anything violent as he had imagined. He cried for a long time, but when he finally quietened down, a place in him that had been closed like a fist was open. And at the end of the ride, he stood up and got off that train and through the streets and in all the places he lived later on, he walked himself at last, a man among men, with such radiance that everyone looked up and wondered. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of The Reader Podcast. We're so grateful to our guests at Gravity, Tony Schumacher and Chris Dowrick, and their interviewers, Greg Jenkins and Philip Davis. Thanks to Humphreys AV for those recordings from Gravity, and to Chris Lynn for editing them and producing this episode. The Reader relies on the support of our core funders, Arts Council England, the National Lottery Community Fund, the players of the People's Postcode Lottery and the Steve Morgan Foundation. Further details about The Responder and about Chris Dowrick's books can be found in the description notes for this episode. We'll be back soon for more conversation, recommendations and shared reading. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe and help us spread the word or visit the Reader website to find other ways to support the work we do. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.